0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Good morning, Grace. You parents and teachers, Happy New Year. This is it. First week of school, and you have to go back tomorrow. Okay, right. Sorry, right. Well, um, this is a special Sunday, Grace. We we, we tend to... set apart this Sunday when people are coming back and a lot of people are done with vacations and tell us a little bit about uh, what Grace is like and what we're doing uh, at Grace. I'm just a pastor, uh, but you guys are the ministers. That's right. And today I want to tell you about the ministry at Grace and and what, we, what our strategy is and how uh, your ministry can be enhanced by what we do and why we do it. There's method to the madness that we do here. Be- before I get started with that, I wanted to... Uh, um, Remind you of one of the announcements there, and that is that we're doing a series coming up called Five Words, and if you want to be in a discussion group, by all means, fill out that card and and put it in the offertory plate when it goes by, and then we're selling these discussion group questions book with, with chapters for each one of the five words that will be helpful and referenced to a really good work that you might consider reading and purchasing that book. Those are on sale in the lobby for the next few weeks. The two tables at the very front of the lobby on each side of the banner, that's where you can get them. They're simply a dollar. So please go by and take a look at that. Let me start our learning time today with an old story. You probably heard it. it's a folk story about a wonderfully beautiful, handsome man, a young man, was walking through an enchanted forest, and it came upon a young lady who immediately fell in love with him. She lived in the forest, and she wanted to take him to see things that he would never see otherwise. Well, he was not amused, and he pushed her away and told her to stand back and to leave him alone. It crushed her so much that she spent the rest of her life living in abject loneliness. Well, uh, Nemesis, the goddess of revenge, she hears of this story and knows just what to do with narcissists. She knew for him to learn the lesson of love spurned, she would lead him to a still spring pond where he would look over the side and gaze and see his own reflection. He didn't know it was his own reflection, but he immediately fell in love. And he tried to converse with this darling. Maybe uh, she uh, was a fairy of, of the pond, and there was no response. And he kept trying to win over this love. And it was impossible. And it was so hurtful towards him that the love was not reciprocated that he, f- he wouldn't eat. And in some, depending on the version, he took his own life or starved himself to death. These days, Nemesis just sells selfie sticks. <laughs> She's still at work. The reason I tell you the story of narcissists is not um, for people maybe with narcissistic personality disorder, but what people are calling now, cultural analysts and psychologists are calling a culture of narcissism. An entire culture that's enamored with themselves that are, that are, are con- consumed with their own points of view on life. And the reason I bring that up is because ministry, and those of you, or I'm just a pastor, but you've been doing ministry, some of you for quite some time, realize this is one of the most difficult times to do ministry. Maybe in your experience, it's it certainly, at Grace, it, we have put more time and more finances and more emotion into ministry than we ever have in the history of our church. And, and the reason is, is because of a culture of narcissism. I want to tell you today about, about what Grace is doing about that and how we are, we are trying to do ministry more effectively Now, it's not about so much the purpose of our church, because the purpose of our church and every really authentic church uh, is to do what they're told. The last uh, paragraph or so in Matthew's autobiography or biography of Jesus, Matthew's gospel, he, he remembers this, that when Jesus goes to this mountain and talks to his disciples and says, Look, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. That's a pretty powerful statement, right? All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. And they're thinking, yes, I'm listening, and I will obey whatever you tell us to do. He said, okay, here's what you need to do. Make disciples. That was his final command, and that's the purpose of the church. That's the purpose of life. That's the meaning and mission for everything. Well, how do you do that? Well, he says, go to all nations, uh, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, and finally baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that's that's what we do, and that's what we've done, and what we'll always do, because that's what it means to be an authentic church. How we do that can change, okay? How we do that can change, because times change, and so I'm here today to inform you, or maybe for some of you, remind you of what we do and why we do it, and so your ministry can be enhanced by the ministry of this church. Ministry is essentially, ministry is essentially finding needs that people have, and then, and showing them how they can be met in the forgiveness that comes in Jesus Christ, allowing us to have an intimate relationship with the Father, and how the power of the Holy Spirit can indwell us and and change us, right? That's what ministry is, finding the need that needs to be met, and then introducing them to the power of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, over the years, um, the needs change, the questions change. And so the answers are supposed to change. It'd be appropriate. And let me just give you a a little survey of of, of some years at Grace and and the American church Uh, in the 70s and the 80s. We responded in what I, I would call classic apologetics. Apologetics is a way of saying answering questions, giving an answer. That's what apologetics means. And so the questions in the 70s and 80s were is it true? Is it real? Did it happen? And so, since those were the questions, a lot of churches, Grace and other evangelical organizations, they could fill auditoriums, fill auditoriums. And, and the speaker would just show that the Gospels were, in fact, historically, verifiably true. And there was uh, guards at the, at the tomb, and Jesus did rise from the dead, and we can know that with a certain degree of certainty. And people would just, wow, I didn't know that, and now I do, and now I want to receive his forgiveness and live my life for him. <laughs> it's true. Well, the, the, the times changed and people aren't answer, asking that question anymore. And now, even to this day, ministries, those are good questions still, but ministries that have that as the majority of their answers, they're not listening because no one's asking, not very many people are asking that question or those questions anymore. So in the 90s and the early 2000s, it became a little more esoteric, a little more philosophical. Uh, a thing, existential nihilism kind of came into our country eventually, and we started asking deeper questions about the meaning and purpose of life, if there's an ethics outside of our own existence, if there's some transcendent experience that and give us e- eternal souls, those sorts of things. And, and we responded with um, philosophical discussions on worldview and a meta-narrative, a bigger story that we're all part of, those sorts of things, and people, people responded. That you could, again, you could fill auditoriums with... People in a philosophical apologist, and and people would say, you know what? That is internally consistent. And and I want to know more about the teachings of Jesus Christ and the philosophies of life that he taught about and and the forgiveness that comes through him alone. And people were living their lives for Jesus. And then it changed again. Another paradigm shift happened. That's where we learned the word paradigm was back in those days. And if your ministry is built around answering those kind of questions, they're still important questions, but most people aren't asking those questions anymore. And and so you're not listening. Things have changed. And so what do we do now? What is the ministry style? Okay, the purpose stays the same. Make disciples. Go to the nations, right? Teaching them to obey all that Jesus taught us, right? And, And then baptizing them. How... How do we respond to something new? How do we teach them to obey? Well, it's kind of going back to the definition of ministry. What are the questions? What are the questions people are asking now? And how could that apply to you know, the, the teachings and the truths that are found in the Bible? Now, to understand that, okay, to understand what are the questions being asked and how our ministries now are formed around that, you have to kind of go back to the very beginning of ministry the creation of man, right, the essence of man, uh, anthropology, the, the nature of the soul. That's what I'd like to do today is I want to talk to us about the nature of soul and what, what happened and what changed during the fall and how that brought about needs that we're designing our church, many of our church ministries around because those are the questions that people are asking now. That's, that's, that's what we do. Here's, here's the essence of the way we were designed, the make, the way we were made we were designed to face out. We were designed by God to to face out of ourselves, not in to our own selfish ambitions or whatever they might be, but towards, to to, to gaze outward, to gaze towards God's glory and be enamored with that, To, to gaze upon the beauty and the potential of creation and what we could do if we played our part to, to gaze into the eyes, the souls of, of our fellow human beings and seeing you know, the, the, the nature of God within them and to enjoy that. We were designed to, to face out. We, we, uh, the, the prototypes, right? Adam and Eve, they were uh, their intellect and emotion and will, right? They, they weren't in, involved in self interest, they served. They were made to serve. They were made to serve God. They were made to serve God's uh, ambitions for creation. They were made to serve each other. Their their personal needs were never pursued as an end. Their personal needs were met by gazing and by serving, by facing out. I'll explain more. But but innocence is is self-forgetfulness. Innocence is self-forgetfulness. And, and there's plenty of ambition in Adam and Eve, but it's not selfish ambition. It's not about them and what they get. It's about what God wants and what they can give. So, that's the way we're made and designed. And when you, and you watch the fall, we'll look at chapter 3, and we'll, we'll study the historical uh, uh, telling of the fall of mankind. And what I want you to see is how it corrupts this purpose of facing out, and it turns us, right, on on an essential level, the nature of our soul, it turns us in on ourselves. It it causes us to be uh, self-focused and self-absorbed. We're intoxicated with what we need to get out of life, and it happens instantly. It is not from outside. it's It's not like a curse from God. It is the cost of rebelling against God, Now we're turned in. I want you to listen as we go through this story. I want you to listen, watch, and I hope to understand. In a deeply psychological, soulish level, you'll see Adam and Eve, and you'll see it in our lives. You'll see it's the consequence in our, our, and we'll see how that turning in affects two areas, two primary areas of life, pretty much the whole of life, relationships and our vocation. Relationships and vocation. Turning in and how it spills into relationships and our vocation. Okay, so you know the story. You might know the story of Adam and Eve, and they were created, and they were custom-made for each other, right? Custom-made by God for each other. Adam was granted Eve, and he said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is it. And they're, they're allowed the freedom that no one has had since then, and the innocence of selflessness, right, and self-forgetfulness And there's one prohibition that they can't take from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's all. And then she's tempted, and he goes along, and and the story goes in verse 6, chapter 3. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it, and she also gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And look at verse 7, it's on the screen. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. <laughs> okay? <laughs> this is not a judgment of God. No, God's not in this story. The moment they take from that and disobey God's command, they turn in and they, and they realize they were naked. Friends, what does that mean? Before that moment, they never even knew. They didn't even know enough to think about themselves in their their state to even consider whether they were naked or not because they were self-forgetful because that's what innocence is. That is the way we were meant. They have never blushed. There was nothing to be ashamed of. There was nothing to be uh, embarrassed about, not just in their nakedness but in, in in, in their selfness. This is the first time anyone did this because they didn't know it was, they didn't know otherwise. The automatic consequence for this is to, is to see that this, this shame tur- is turning in and causing major ripples in the nature of the human soul. And Perilandra, I mean, this, is not a, this is not a unique kind of story, right? Every, people try to build on what happens in C.S. Lewis's uh, rendition of The Temptation of the Garden of Eden. It's a science fiction book called Paralandra. And the nemesis in that story, right, the evil one, the devil is trying to take Eve and appeal to her vanity, he literally pulls out a pocket mirror and shows it to her so that she could see her own image so that appealing to her vanity, she would be discontent in who she is and what she looks like and want more and then disobey God. But when she does, she looks at herself in the mirror, right, right just like Nemesis. She looks at herself in the mirror and because there is no vanity within her, It cannot be appealed to, and she's content with who she is and sees no reason for this. But after this happens, now now God visits. And again, while we walk our way through this passage, when God visits, look at the soulish consequence of turning in. Look how God even sees the consequences are natural. And then look how it affects their relationship with each other and how it affects their vocation. Okay, so um, God shows up in verse 8. It says, And then, um, then the man and the wife heard, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day in his regular visits with them. And he, and he heard the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord, and so they hid themselves. And he said, And the, they, the Lord said, Where are you? And Adam answers, says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Look what God says. And who said you were naked? he sees it's happening. It's already done. Who said you were naked? Why do you care? Oh, no, 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 no. no! You've turned in. You've turned in now. Now life is going to be about getting and taking and blaming. No, no, no. Oh, wait, look what he does. Did you disobey? The next sentence, right? Look, Have you eaten from the tree that it commanded you not to eat from? Of course, that's how it happened. No, no, you took from the tree, and now all is lost. See, now it's going to be selfish ambition, not ambition for things that God has for you. It won't be be love anymore. It'll be lust. It'll be about how much you can get. And then blame and vanity and pride and insecurity. All these things enter because we're turning in, and we were designed to turn out. And watch what happens now. Okay, that's, that's happened. Now watch, how, watch what happens relationally speaking, right? Verse 12. And the man said, did you eat from the tree that was forbidden? Yeah. Uh, well, okay, the woman you put here with me, she gave it to me from the tree and I ate it. And then, and then the woman says, well, yeah, uh, it was the, the serpent. He kind of talked me into it. So here's the psychological consequences, right? Self-preservation. Okay, I'm going to be the only person on this boat I'll be the first person on the life raft or maybe the only person on the life raft. And Adam turns on his wife, custom designed and made for him. But he's so self-oblivious to his love for his wife that he, he blames her. This is, this is what happens to us. We say, uh, there is no law. That law doesn't apply to me. Right? Uh, th- there's, uh, it, uh, it was somebody else's fault, wow. right? There is no law. I'm not wrong. There is no law or I'm above it or let's blame someone else. That's what it looks like in our relationships with others. Not taking responsibility, not giving forgiveness, not receiving forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah, and, then, and then anger, discourse, and mistrust enter this relationship and it will never be. It was designed to be because it was designed to face out. It was designed to gaze, and it was designed to serve. Yeah. Now look at vocationally. This is what happens. Now the curses are added, and vocationally speaking, in chapter 3, verse 16, God speaks to the woman first and says, I gave you the gift of childbirth and child raising. And now there will be a curse attached to that. And then he looks at the man in the next verse and says, you know, I gave you the gift of, of productivity and turning you know, chaos into something that's beautiful. And, and while it's still a gift to you, now there'll be toil attached to it. It's, it's, so, it's so wrong now, okay? And now, and now in relationships and vocation, they can become competitive because it's about me. It's about what I see in the image of a pond or on a selfie stick or in a Facebook Look, life does not work facing in because it violates the design of the human soul. Life cannot work in relationships or in our vocation because God won't allow it to work when we're facing in. And so look what happens vocationally speaking. Watch, I mean, the history of uh, of, of, of industry goes like this. People hold up a mirror and they say to themselves, I want everything I can, whatever I can, as fast as I can. And if they're an employer and they're in a position of power, they use that power and authority to take advantage of people, right? Because they can be taken advantage of. And that goes on until, what, until the, the people that are being abused... Maybe form a union and say, we can't, we can't do this anymore. And, and usually for really good purpose, for justice and fairness. And then what happens? And then the employees hold up a mirror and say, I want to get whatever I can, as much as I can, as fast as I can. And I don't care if the whole corporation burns down around me. Or sometimes the union leaders that originally maybe had good intentions use their new power and authority to abuse the people that they were protecting. And so now, listen, we need unions for our unions. There's not enough unions when people are focusing in and getting whatever they can. That's vocation. And, and, and in relationships, have you seen the divorce rate? Not just about married people. I'm talking about brothers and sisters and siblings and friends. Once best friends, now enemies. Why? because somebody holds up a selfie and says, you know what, I'm putting out more than I'm taking in. And instead of giving forgiveness, they give blame. Instead of focusing out on how could I serve this other human soul and gazing at them and seeing the beauty of God's creation in them, they become an instrument for me to enjoy life. And it's not working. And so we trade them in on something new. We're designed to face out we're designed to, to gaze and to serve. Gaze at the wonder of God, at the potential of creation, and at other human beings, and we're designed to serve. Look, when the second prototype shows up, more examples, more proof, okay? When the second prototype shows up that's not bent, Adam, the second Adam, that's Jesus. He has the title of second Adam because the writer of the Bible wants us to know, okay, okay, we've got another one. That's, this one's not bent. This is the way we were all meant to be. He's fully man. He's like you were supposed to be. He shows up, and he says, listen, no, no, no. He has his own men, disciples. For three years, they've been traveling with him, and he hears them arguing over who's going to be in his cabinet. Vocation power. Using their relationship with Jesus to get a toe in the door so they can be on top. And this is what he says. He says, (laughs) you want to be great? You're going to need to serve. Do you want to be first? You're going to want to be you're going to need to be the slave of all mankind. Listen, you want to be first, you have to be a slave to everyone. And then he says even even the son of man. That's a title. Okay, it's a it's a position of authority, it's a position of greatness. It is the epic of man of mankind. Even the son of man, right? Didn't come to use that authority to push everybody around, but the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Why? It's the design. It's the way we were made. It's the only way that works. Okay. So <laughs> it's the only way that can work. These are the questions of people are asking: How do I have relationship? How do I have purpose and vocation? You know, it's interesting. As much as things have changed over the years. I mean, nothing's changed, right? Nothing's changed. because people, because they're bent and turned in, they, they use people and they use their power to get what they want, and they miss it. And when again, you can turn to many stories in, with the interactions with Jesus in the Bible, and you'll see that people psychologically remember, relationally speaking, the consequences uh self-preservation. And so uh, I, I, I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> That, that law doesn't apply to me, or I'm going to blame someone else, right? Watch. Let me tell you a story. Uh, I think it's in Mark. No, it's in Luke. Well, it's in, I think, all the Gospels, Luke chapter 5. Uh, this is the story where Matthew is a tax collector. He becomes one of the disciples. This is his conversion experience. He's in his tax booth, and I, apparently he's, he does quite well for a living. And Jesus just walks up to him. Matthew is a Jewish man, and he's a tax collector, so he's not liked by anyone is what it comes down to. But he's wealthy. And Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. And it says in the Bible that he left everything at that booth and followed him. But that wasn't enough. Matthew had a huge, it said a huge banquet that night to celebrate. And so he invited all of his friends. And who are his friends? Well, (laughs) birds of a feather other tax collectors. That's the only kind of people he could possibly hang around with. And so it says he's got a party going on at his house celebrating that he's leaving the business and following Jesus. Right. There's people in his lawn, that sort of thing. A big crowd is gathering and some religious people show up, listen, listen to this bent in and how it's affecting their relationships and their vocation. And they, the religious leaders show up and they say, what are you doing, Jesus, dining with so many sinners and tax collectors? This is the line that they completely missed, blinded by their bent inward. He says, Jesus answered them and said, it's not for the healthy who need a doctor, but to sick. I've come not to call the righteous. I came to call the sinners to repentance. No, nothing. (laughs) The Pharisees are like, oh, right. If I find somebody that needs help, I'm going to send them to you. You know, wait, that's awesome. Could I have one of your cards? Because I have some friends that might need. See? Yeah, good. I'm seeing I'm See, they were so blinded, they went straight to, I didn't do anything wrong, or that law doesn't apply to me, or it's someone else's fault. They don't even see that they need a Savior. He, he just slapped them right across the soul, and they missed it. But here's the other thing. They use their vocation, their religious right? Position to judge other people, and their position was to serve other people, to bring them into the fold of loving God, and they are pushing them out. Classic. The Bible's filled with these stories. There's supposed to be an alternate ending to this thing, right? When Jesus says, I came for the sick, not for the well. I came to help the sinners, not the righteous. And what was supposed to happen is a couple of these guys were dropped their, you know, their, 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 whatever's in their hand and said, get out of the way. Matthew, you got to save some room on that table for me. Right? Because I, I am so ambitious about my status that I have, there's so many footprints on other people's backs so that I could get where I am. I can't stand this about me and I can't change it. I can't even celebrate other people being promoted because I'm envious of them. You know, I, I'm... I'm I'm constantly asking myself self questions, you know. Like why can't I have more or why don't more people like me or why do I always feel bad? See? <laughs> I got to get at that table because I'm bleeding just like the rest of them. But they didn't. They didn't. So it's it's <laughs> it's been there. The new normal. Here's the thing. Here's let me show you how applying this now becomes a the means of ministry at grace, right? How does grace do this now? What are the questions being asked? Because that's what what ministry is, is helping answer the questions. The questions are, how come I can only have shallow relationships or attempt deep ones and they implode? I can't stop myself from wrecking these things because you're turned in and you're going to have to get turned out somehow. Or, where do I find meaning and purpose in what I do? I do mundane things. Because, well, the answer is finding it, purpose and meaning in doing what God has for you and seeing that that's what you're designed to do. The ministries of grace, for the most part, are these two roads that bring us to this gospel, that, that, that bring us to this conversation that says life won't work, life can't work, not because it's broken but because you're broken. And your thoughts and your dreams are captivated by selfishness and you winning in some context of relationships or vocation. So what do we do? What do we do as a church what do we do as individuals? Here's what you do. You shine bright in these areas that are questions. You shine bright in these areas of the cost of turning in in relationships and vocation. Apply this passage to your life and you will, you will be different. Look what, it, look what it says in Philippians chapter 2. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Just stop right there. Okay, just be, can you imagine? Can you imagine you're not the person at work or in relationships that aren't grumbling or arguing? Whoa, you're not from here, are you? Okay, let's, there's more to the verse, actually. There's a, so that you don't grumble and argue, so that you become blameless and pure. Look what the quotes say. Look, you'll be, you'll be called children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. What kind of warped and crooked? Turned in. You just don't argue and grumble, and you'll be called like a child of God. And then look what it keeps going. It says, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Hold firmly to the word of life, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. When you apply Jesus' teaching and and obey all that he's commanded in relationships and vocation, that's most of your time, right? You're going to shine like a bright star on a dark night. The darker the night, the brighter the star." Things are getting so bad, they're getting good, right? I mean, it says in the Bible, in end times, they will become lovers of self. Yep. Yep. How do we do the Great Commission? What is the Great Commission? You know, the last words of Jesus, his command, make disciples. Go, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That's what we do here. How do we do it? Okay, how do we do it? Made up some words. I like making up stuff. So <laughs> relational apologetics. Classic apologetics, philosophical apologetics, relational apologetics. It says this. It says it's, it's it's acknowledging the buzzwords of our culture. What are the buzzwords? They people are just screaming and des- desiring authenticity, right? Transparency, integrity, vulnerability. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> But no one can do it because they're turned in. They're bent, turned in. And if you, if you apply this desire in the human soul for more in relationships that, and, you, and you show what it's like to gaze, right, to gaze at the glory of God, at the potential of creation if we, you know, we do as will for creation, and if we gaze into other people's and don't see them as mammals but to see them as spirit dwellers, right, in the image of God, then it changes. It changes the way people th- think about you. And like what we're asking is that you would take a pole position or be a pace setter or for you to apply the Bible teaching in this way. That's why at Grace, we didn't have this a few years ago when we were talking about classic apologetics, but think in the ministries here, why do we have Celebrate Recovery? Because most of us don't know how to have authenticity and transparency and integrity and vulnerability. We can't. We don't know how. And so if you think Celebrate Recovery, for example, is for uh, people with chemical addiction issues, okay, I'll give you 12% on that. The rest is people just trying to learn how to have obedience of the teachings of Christ in their relationships, to not feel shame, to not be in control, and to turn out. So face out. We want you to lead. what I'm asking you to do. That lead. That's why we have reengage. Reengage is a marriage ministry that meets on Monday night, so that two couples say, "You know what? We can't do this. We're so we're drunk on our on our own stuff. Will you help us apply? Would you get the Spirit of God in our lives so that we can face out and gaze and serve one another?" Could you help us? These are training wheels in the context of, mini- of, of relationships. And, and our children's ministry and our youth ministry. We're going to launch a new aspect of our children's ministry in January because of the building opening up. It's called Faith at Home. And we're going to help parents learn how to turn and face out and look at their child. Help them, the children, turn and face out the, they, the way they were meant to live, the way they were meant to see life. We, here's, how to, here's how to be different in the world is when when you bring relations, you have conversations with friends, and and they find themselves saying something like, there is so much truth in your love. (laughs) Or there's so much love in your truth. How do you do that? You say, I don't know. I mean, I'm really bad at this. I'm trying. See, what we do here at Grace is we give grace a lot. And we learn to receive forgiveness a lot because we're all clutches at this because we are so bent in and now our culture is throwing gas and kerosene on this narcissistic bent that we already have. And so we're, we're, we're learning together, but I'm asking you, here's what I'm calling you to, holiness in relationship. And, and we're gonna talk a lot about applying the teachings of Jesus in, in relationships with your roommate or your friends. Sometimes family, sometimes with your husband or your wife, in your dating relationship, will you make that dating relationship holy, and you'll shine like a star on a dark night? Come on, it's not about how much you can get. Are you getting it? I don't care. It's not about me. That's the paradigm. It's not about me. And listen, I when we talk about things, and even parenting or marriage, I, it's unfortunate set of calendar circumstances. I know when we're talking about something that doesn't apply to you, sometimes it can, uh, if nothing else, boring, but sometimes hurtful. We're about to go into, f- you know, five words, six weeks about marriage, and some of you uh, have not been married or will be or, or, or been married and won't be again. Well, you, know, you understand, right? Some be- when we talk about parenting, some of you won't ever be parents and cannot ever be parents. I, under- I understand how painful that is. But here's the thing. Please come and serve us. Because I I know I'm pouring, you know, the context and the the content is is pouring vinegar over an open wound, but we need you to come here and pray for us. We need your help to break through in relational areas that you won't have to experience or won't get to experience, but we need your help to unleash the spirit in our lives. So please come and please help. Listen, my, my kids were growing up Um, they went, it was mandatory, you went to the other, your siblings' events. And let me just compare two of our children, okay? My son plays a very physical lacrosse game. He played a lot of them. And my daughter danced. Okay, you know what the overlap is? Maybe a halftime, okay? That's it. But they always went to each other's event. There was no freedom in our family. I mean, freedom is so overrated. I mean, why do we use it all the time? And so they went to every, my son went to every one of the dance things that she, that she did, and she went to every one of the lacrosse games that he could play and she could attend. What was free to choose was whether they would enjoy it or not. And they learned to choose to enjoy it. And so my daughter had a lot of fun watching lacrosse games eventually, and my son had a lot of fun watching my, her, his sister dance eventually. Could you please do that? Could you come and, and serve us in that context? Now, I apologize ahead of time for injury that could be caused, but going back to relational apologetics, set the goal or set the pace. Be the pole car. Be the person that's out there saying, I'm going to pursue truth and love. I'm going to focus out. I'm going to gaze at people. I will serve people. Vocationally, okay, vocational apologetics. <laughs> serve, serve. I mean, this is, it's somewhat simple. It's elementary. But, you know, you could work hard, like the Bible says. We're teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. The Bible says, work hard unto the Lord. Act like your boss is Jesus. If you ha- you know, that's it. And you just do that. You'll be amazed at how you stand out. Second, respect authority. You just respect authority because the Bible says, as unto the Lord. Look at your boss like they're the Lord. If, you ha- if you're the boss, if you have authority, then you serve the people because you have the power to do that, so you serve them. If you work hard and respect authority, and the third thing is just show contentment or gratitude. Gratitude in this world? Oh, my goodness. Friends, no, people won't know what to do with you. Look, he's a hardworking person that respects his boss, and he's grateful. Do you have any friends? That's what it looks like vocationally. Here's what we're asking you to do. here's, Here's the call, the clarion call today. In ministry at Grace, we've realized that the culture has changed. It's turning in end times. They're lovers of self. And this call is really to holiness. It's a call to holiness. And see, as followers of Jesus Christ, if, if you have submitted your life to Christ and received his forgiveness, you can do these things. Because, because, because failure and shame and embarrassment and contentment has learned these things. You can have that because of what's happened to you. You have an intimate, let me remind you, you have an intimate relationship with the Father. He tells you to call him Daddy, Abba, Father. And that comes from receiving forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. But in that resurrection, we inherit his righteousness. It doesn't end there. The reception of Christ's righteousness allows the Spirit of God to enter our souls and empower us to change. We can be turned right side out by the power of the Spirit of God because the Bible says the same power that rose Him from the dead resides in your soul. You can do this. You can do this in your vocation. You can do this in your relationships. The power of God's Spirit has one frailty, one weakness he's polite he doesn't force himself you need to ask him to dance and then he'll lead you have to <laughs> you have to die to really live because of your relationship with the father you call him father you call him dad because of the work of Christ, the Spirit of God lives inside of you, you have to say, I would rather be used by the Father through the power of His Spirit than to have any of my turned-in dreams realized or experienced in this lifetime. That's That's your letter of invitation to this very polite Holy Spirit. I would rather be used by the Father through the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit than to ever experience my turned-in dreams and expectations in this life. I just, I just want to gaze, and I just want to serve. And then the Spirit says, I can, I can change you if that's your heart. That's what ministry looks like at this church. It is my prayer as a pastor and as an elder here that you would desire that. Can you imagine all of us desiring that? Let's pray to that end. Lord, you, you, you make beautiful things out of dust, and you could make beautiful things out of us. So, Lord, I ask that uh, hand, you know, the people here that are still. Like holding on, you know, to what they can get or take or be right <laughs> or in control or whatever. Lord, I'd, I'd, I'd ask that they would see that as something that happened when they rebel against you and, they, and their souls are turned in. Lord, I, I'd ask that they would release that. They would give up on superficial and shallow dreams, hopes that aren't even your hopes for them. Lord, will you take our lives, take our hearts, take our minds. We surrender these things to you so that we might be used by you so that you'd feel just, you would love that. And that your spirit would be set free in our lives and miraculous change could take place just by getting out of the way. Let us, Lord Jesus, help us get out of the way. Help us take the steps that are necessary to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.